0: Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Lord, I do pray that our hearts would be stilled as we come before you, just uh, stilled in a confident trust that even though at times it feels like the earth around us shakes and the foundations feel like they would be moved, we trust that you're still on your throne and we trust, Lord, that you're in control no matter where we are in life, that you're good, uh, as we sang about earlier, uh, like summer flowers, we fade and die, fame, youth and beauty, hurry by, all the things that we're tempted to put our trust in in this life are fleeting, Lord, but in Christ, we are called to and given eternal life, and so, Lord, I pray that our faith would be fixed on him this morning, that we'd be reminded, Lord, of your goodness and your provision through all the different stages of life, and we ask your help as we seek to do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Church, go and take your Bibles with me, and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We've been studying through Ecclesiastes for quite a while now, and just to remind you of the flow of this book, Solomon spends most of this book trying to help us think through the big questions of life, Right? So, most of this book has been Solomon trying to ask questions like, what is it that makes life worth living? What can you live your life for that really matters? And his conclusion is, the only way that life matters is if life is lived in connection with God. The only sort of life that matters is life that is lived under the fear of God. And so, that's been the big issue that Solomon has been directing us toward through this book. So... Most of of Ecclesiastes has been looking at life through a wide-angle lens, thinking about what it is that makes life worthwhile. But as we came through chapters 10 and 11, that wide-angle lens sort of tightened up. And Solomon started getting down into the nitty-gritty of life. He started trying to help us think through how we live with wisdom with our words, and how we live with wisdom at work, and how we live with wisdom when it comes to how we think about risk. But as we start coming now into the last 16 verses, that's what we're going to start with this morning. As we come into the last 16 verses of Ecclesiastes, it's like the camera lens is going to start widening back out again. So most of Ecclesiastes has been wide angle, chapters 10 and 11, it's zoomed in on particular issues of life. Well, now Solomon's going to zoom back out again. And he's going to, again, start helping us thinking through big worldview questions. And I think it helps us understand Solomon's purpose in writing this, just to remember who Solomon has in mind as he writes this. If you're already in Ecclesiastes 11, look forward to chapter 12. It struck me this week reading this. Look to the verse 12, Ecclesiastes 12, chapter 12, verse 12. And notice who Solomon addresses. Ecclesiastes 12, 12, Solomon says, and further." My son, be admonished by these. Now here's what I'm wanting to highlight. Who does Solomon specifically address there? He addresses his son. Very much like the book of Proverbs, most of Proverbs is Solomon as a father writing to his son, trying to help his son walk down the path of wisdom. Well, Solomon is doing a very similar thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's a father who's looking at his son who seems to be in the prime years of his life. And Solomon doesn't want his son to lose his bearings. Solomon doesn't want his son to waste his life. Because Solomon's at a point in his life now where he realizes how quickly everything passes by. And isn't that so true? You wake up one day and it dawns on you that you've got more days behind you than you have ahead of you. And you can't get those days back. And it's so easy to go through life with no thought to God and you come to the end and realize that you've wasted it all. And Solomon had experienced that. He'd gone through years of his life ignoring God. And those were wasted years. And Solomon doesn't want his son to have that same sort of regret. So here's Solomon this morning speaking to you and I as sons and daughters. Okay, calling us to wisdom. Helping us think about life so we don't look back on life with regret. And so what he's going to do in the passage we're going to look at this morning is much like the psalm we started with where Solomon's going to think about the different seasons of life. Whether you're in the springtime of youth or you're in the winter of old age, Solomon wants to help you think about life through the lens of God's grace. So if your Bible's open to Ecclesiastes 11, we're going to start in verse 9 and we'll go down through verse 8 of chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9, Solomon under the inspiration of God's Spirit, writes these words. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity." Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house, he's going to begin to describe aging now. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms and a grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. We're going to look at this under three big headings this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, rejoice in life. Notice how Solomon starts it in verse 9. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Now, when Solomon uses the word youth, he's not talking about just teenagers. When Solomon uses the word youth, he's talking about anyone who's in the prime of life. So you're still in that period of life where the ravages of old age haven't yet started to set in. And Solomon says, rejoice in those days. Make the most of the prime years of your life. Don't waste those years. Enjoy those days of life. He even adds, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. It's the idea of put your heart into it. Find out what it is you're passionate about and go after it. Because there are unique blessings that come in those early years of life. When your health is still good. And even if you have a a setback or even if you have an illness, you tend to bounce back quickly from it. You have all sorts of time in front of you. You have all kinds of opportunities in front of you. He's just highlighting here the blessings that come in youth. When you still have lots of energy and you have lots of time and you have lots of opportunity. But think of how it goes when you're young. You can start a career and then decide I don't like it and change direction completely because you have lots of time ahead of you. So there's huge advantages to those early years. And what Solomon is saying here is live those early years to the glory of God. Make the most of them. Enjoy the prime years of your life. Okay, so so does that mean that God is saying, hey, while you're in those prime years of life, just get as much pleasure as you can. Is that the point? Is he saying while you're in those early years of life, just party as much as you can and drink as much as you can and sleep with as many people as you can while you're young? How do we know that's not the point he's making? What did you notice? The last phrase of verse 9? It's how we know that's not the point he's making. He says at the end of verse 9, But know that for all these, God will bring you in to judgment. So he's saying live life to the fullest and live your life with the awareness that one day you're going to give an account to God. So when he says in the first part, rejoice and live life, he's obviously not saying, hey, sow your wild oats while while you're young. We know that because he comes at the end and says, hey, one day what you sow while you're young is going to bring a harvest. See, while, while you're young, it seems like the day of judgment is a long way off. But Solomon's reminding us that it's going to get here quickly. We will stand before God and we'll give an account. Here's Young people, if you're a teenager, young adult, listen to me. This is one of the great lies that our world tries to convince us of. It tries to convince us that it is completely permissible to live like a fool while you're young. It's no big deal. God just brushes it aside. God understands. Boys will be boys and girls will be girls. So live like a fool. You have a free pass while you're young. But what Solomon is saying here is you don't have a free pass. God cares how you live those prime years. God cares that you live those prime years of your life in a way that honors and glorifies Him. So live life to the fullest And live life with the awareness that you're going to give an account for those days to God. So those two truths, verse 9, those two sides of it together, are meant to put some guardrails around how we pursue joy. So he's saying pursue joy, enjoy life, but pursue that joy within the guardrails of God's law. And when Solomon tells us here to rejoice in life, he's telling us to do something that comes natural to us. I mean, all of us, want to find joy in life. Nobody has to convince you of that. You want to find things in life that will bring you joy, but the problem is because of our sin nature, we tend to look for that joy in all the wrong places. That point's made in both the Old and the New Testament. We're driven to find pleasure and we're driven to find joy, but in our sin, we turn to all the wrong sources. Here's the way Jeremiah says it in the Old Testament. Listen to this description. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he writes, For my people, this is God speaking to his people, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, God says, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you get the image he's painting? It's the idea that we're looking for water that will satisfy us. We want joy, we want something that will satisfy our soul, and God is the only spring of that water, meaning God is the only source of real joy and real life, but in our sin we reject God and we've tried to dig our own wells. But what's the problem with the wells that we dig? Solomon says they're all broken sisters. In other words, none of them can hold water. So we keep going to all the different wells the world offers and we keep pulling up bucket after bucket of nothing but sand. So we keep turning to the things of the world to satisfy and they don't work. The way that Paul describes it in Romans 1 is Paul says that we we have turned from the Creator to created things. And the problem with that is there is nothing in creation that can satisfy what our souls thirst for. There's nothing this world offers that's deep enough for that. It's like everything the world offers is like cotton candy. It's it's sweet initially, but there's no substance to it. There's nothing to it that lasts. And Solomon is saying that's the way this world works. That's life without God. So this is old and young, but young people especially listen to me. Don't pursue joy at the exclusion of God because you'll never find it. Don't pursue satisfaction in life at the exclusion of God because you'll never find it. All you can find apart from God is temporary pleasure. All you can find apart from God is hollow joys. I'll give you a simple example of this from our culture. Sex disconnected from God is an empty pleasure. So think of how you see this in our culture. Our culture has completely thrown open the floodgates to sexual expression. And so the general impulse of our world is you should sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want, however you want, no guardrails attached to any of it. So let me ask you a question. Has that produced more joyful people? As you look around in our world, do you see more soul-satisfied, happy people? I don't. Most of the people, most of the people who come into my office have deep shame and deep regret over the things that they've done. Because what that's produced, it hasn't produced more satisfied people, it's produced more scarred people. It's produced more hollow people. It's produced more shallow people. But but sex as God designed it within the covenant of marriage, is fulfilling and joyful. It's all of the pleasure and none of the shame. Well, that's an example of what Solomon is saying here. God has given us joy. He gives us life that's satisfied. But that life, that joy has to be found within the guardrails of God's law. If you look for that joy outside of God's parameters, you won't find real joy. What you'll find is something that will leave you deeply broken and scarred, But make sure you don't miss the key point here. Notice how verse, verse 11 starts again. Rejoice in your youth. That's a command. What's God commanding us to do there? Rejoice. God is commanding us to find joy in life. Here's why I'm emphasizing that. It's not just that God begrudgingly allows us to enjoy life. It's that the God who made us commands us to enjoy life. God wants us to have rich, joyful, satisfying lives. It is so important, parents, it is so important that your kids and your grandkids get that lesson. Because our world does its best to try to convince us that life with God is a life of misery. God is just this cosmic killjoy. And if you follow Christ, if you give yourself to Christianity, the goal is to suck all the joy out of life and make you as miserable as possible. But you have to see what a huge lie that is. And it is a lie. It's a lie, in fact, that Satan has been using from the very beginning, isn't it? Well, what, is the, what is the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? It's, it's not just that they, that they eat the wrong fruit. The sin is they believe a lie about God. Satan comes to Adam and Eve. He convinces them to rebel against God because he poisons their view of God. Isn't that what he does? Satan comes and says, hey, God's told you not to eat that because God knows that's what will really make you happy. God, God is trying to keep you from the good life. Now that's a, that's a pretty big... Deception from Satan. Because imagine what he's doing. He's actually getting Adam and Eve to forget about the whole garden. Really to forget about the whole world that God had given them to enjoy. And instead he gets them to focus on the one thing that God had said was off limits. And says it's that one thing that will make you happy. God is trying to keep you from enjoying life. And they believe the lie and rebel. And when they rebelled, that poisonous view of God infected all of humanity. You you realize that's what's at the heart of our sin nature. What lies at the heart of humanity's sin nature is we have believed this lie about God. When we sin, it's because we believe God's law is not for our good. It's because we believe God's wisdom is not real wisdom. There's a better way. There's a more satisfying life. That's the lie that we've bought into. But God calls us and commands us to enjoy life. Don't fall for the lie. God's heart overflows with goodness and graciousness and generosity. God so wants to give His people good things that He's already given us the greatest thing. He's given us His Son. He sent Jesus, the greatest gift, as our substitute. To die in our place and take our judgment and rise from the dead. The, the way Paul says it in Romans 8 is he who did not withhold his son, he who didn't spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? In other words, Paul's saying, if God has already given you the greatest gift, is he if he's given you his son so that you can be saved and forgiven? There's no good thing that God will withhold from you. God's not a miser. God's not trying to keep you miserable. God wants to lead you down the path of joy. So he says to young men, Rejoice in your youth. And he adds in verse 10, Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth Our vanity. So verse 9 is the positive command. Rejoice in your youth. And then verse 10 comes at it and negatively reminds us of what we have to get rid of if we're going to find joy in life. So what do we have to get rid of? He says remove sorrow. That might be translated in your Bible, vexation. Remove vexation from your heart. Now that word has been used several times by Solomon in this book going all the way back to chapter 2. That's where Solomon says If you live your life thinking that the answer is enough knowledge, it's vexation. If you live your life thinking the answer is in your career, it's vexation. If you live your life thinking the answer is money, it's vexation. And that's the word that he comes back to now. So Solomon's point here is that if you live your life for your work, if you live your life for money, trying to keep up with your neighbors... You will ruin your ability to find real joy in your life. You have to get sorrow out of your heart. And he adds, put evil away from your flesh. And his point is, if your life is ruled by sin, you won't be able to enjoy life the way God intended it. And remember, he's saying this especially to young people. It's a call for you in your prime of life to find joy in life. But Solomon's reminding us, the only way you'll find joy in the prime of life is if you learn to become a repenter in the prime of life. Listen to me, young folks. The longer you let that sin stay in your heart, the deeper you let it sink its roots, the harder it is to pull it out and the more damage it does when you finally do pull it out. There are older people in this church who would testify to seeds of sin that they allowed in their lives for years that they wish they would have dealt with 20 years ago they wish they would have uprooted it. And Solomon is saying you've got to get that out of your life while you're young. If you're going to find joy in life while you're young, learn to repent while you're young. Call your sin what it is before God while you're young. Look for God's help and freedom from that sin while you're young. And remember that those years of your youth are not going to last forever. That's why Solomon has that last phrase in verse 10 where he says, childhood and youth our vanity. That means those years are fleeting. The years of your youth come and go in a flash, so don't waste those years in rebellion against God. God cares deeply about what you do with the prime years of your life. So rejoice in life. Here's the second point. Number two, remember your Creator. Now back to chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Beginning of chapter 12 and the end of chapter 11 are connected together. The way you rejoice in your youth is by remembering your Creator in your youth. You'll never find real joy in the prime years of of your life unless you're living in submission to your Creator in those years. And when Solomon says, remember your creator, that word remember doesn't just mean don't forget your creator. That word remember in the Bible entails action. So you might remember the story in 1 Samuel of a lady named Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? Hannah is this barren woman, and Hannah begins pleading with God to bless her with a child. And 1 Samuel says, God remembered, same word, remembered Hannah. Hannah. And gave her a son. What does it mean that God remembered her? It means God paid special attention to her. It means God acted on behalf of Hannah. Well, that's the same point Solomon is making when he says, Remember your Creator. He is saying, Pay special attention to your Creator. Live your life on behalf of your Creator. Live your life. The phrase is quorum Deo. That means live your life in the presence of God. Live your life before the face of God. But he doesn't just tell us to remember God, does he? He uses a specific particular title. Who does he tell us to remember? Not just God. He uses a title. He says, remember your creator. Why is he telling us that? Because one of the keys to finding joy in life is remembering that you are a creature. You're not ultimate in life. The world doesn't revolve around you and I. We're the creation. God is the creator. So he is saying, remember the one who flung the stars into orbit. Remember the one who calms the wind and the waves. Remember the one who spoke everything into existence. Remember the God who brought you to life and the God who gave you life. Live your life paying special attention to Him. So you could sum it up. Solomon is saying, don't go through life ignoring the God who gave you life. If you're going to find joy in life, you have to live your life under the watchful gaze of God. And again, he is especially saying this to young people. He is saying, remember Him while you're young. Don't wait. I mean, this is the truth, parents, that we can't start teaching our kids early enough. You can't early enough start reminding your kids that they are the creation, that we're made by God, that life doesn't exist. In fact, if you are catechizing your kids, I hope you are, how does the catechism begin? Our boys and girls who have know the catechism, the first three questions are, who made you? Answer, I should hear little voices answering. Boys and girls, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. There's a reason why those are the first three questions of the catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. There's a reason it starts there because that's the foundation. That's the first thing they need to recognize is there's a God who made me. I was made by this great God and I was made for this great God. I and everything else exist for the glory of this great God. So my life only matters and makes sense if it's lived for this great God. That's the foundation Solomon's laying. Don't forget God in these years. Remember God while you're young. Don't forget Him now. Don't forget God in these days when habits are being formed and characters being shaped. Don't forget God in these days when you're choosing a spouse and when you're having kids. Don't forget God in these days when you're making choices about a career path. Don't forget God in these days. These are the days when the course of your life's being set. Remember your Creator now, Solomon is saying. Live your life under the watchful gaze of God now. Don't be like Solomon who pushed God to the fringes for decades of his life. How often do you hear someone later in their life share their testimony and they talk about the way they went off course during the early years of life? I've heard a million testimonies like this. They talk about the way they went off course in those early years of their their life and they were away from God and they talk about the way they wrecked their life in those years. Stories of marriages that were ruined. Stories of careers that went up in flames. Stories of relationships that were soured. Stories of kids who they don't even have conversations with anymore because they were away from God and everything was wrecked. And it wasn't until later in their life that they finally remembered the Lord. And that's a glorious thing. God rescues us wherever we are. No matter how big of a mess you have made of your life, if you will acknowledge it before God and look to Jesus in faith, There's forgiveness and there's transformation. We're thankful for those testimonies. But there is a much better testimony to have than that. You don't have to wait until your life goes up in flames to remember the Lord. You don't have to wait until everything has been wrecked to finally turn your gaze to Christ. You can remember Him now and save yourself those scars. That's what Solomon is pleading with his son to do. Remember the Lord now. Save yourself the wreckage. Save yourself the ruin. Save yourself the scars. Remember the Lord in the days of your youth. Because, he says, the last part of that verse, difficult days are coming. He's talking about all the trials that come with age. As you get older, pleasures are harder and harder to come by. Your health evaporates, your energy wanes. Many of the people you enjoy spending life with precede you in death. Life gets harder as you get older. And because of that, if you don't remember your Creator now, there's no guarantee you're going to remember Him then. This is another one of Satan's great deceptions is you run into people all the time who their attitude of life is, I'm going to ignore God now, but when I get older, I'll turn back to God then. And and the answer to that is that's almost never the way it works. Almost never. Because our hearts don't tend to get softer with age. Our hearts tend to get harder with age. Our hearts don't tend to get more pliable with age. Our hearts tend to get more calcified with age. So remember your creator now. It's foolish to presume upon God's grace. It's foolish to think you control the levers of your salvation. That you can ignore God now and you'll just decide later. You'll bring conviction on your heart. And you'll somehow generate the new birth yourself when you get older. No. Turn to the Lord today for mercy. Remember your creator before the difficult days come. Charles Bridges said, Many have remembered him too late but none have remembered Him too soon. That's a great, great quote. Many have remembered too late. None have remembered too soon. So here's His instructions to young people. Find joy in life. And joy is only found in connection to God and with the guardrails of His Word. Find joy in life and remember your Creator now. Then here's the third point. Number three, recognize that aging and death come for us all. We've said a hundred times that Ecclesiastes is a sobering book, and this is one of those sobering parts of it. Unless we die early or unless Jesus comes first, we will all experience the effects of time. The aging process is undefeated. If you don't believe that, go to your next high school class reunion. You'll be shocked how much all those other people have aged over time. There's no amount of Botox or hair dye or hair plugs that can hold off the effects of age. And that's what Solomon begins to describe here. Look at verse 2. He's starting to use poetic language to describe what aging looks like. He says, while the sun and the light, this is young, young uh, youth, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. See, what he's doing is he's describing the early years, the prime years of life as if you're always getting to walk in the light, right? The sun is out and you see the moon and you see the stars and the sky's not always covered with clouds. But Solomon is saying as you get older, the light begins to fade. It's absolutely true that as you're young, clouds still roll in. You still face storms when you're young. But when you're young, the clouds part. The sun comes back out. But Solomon's saying the older you get, the longer the clouds tend to stay. The older you get, the less the sun seems to peek through those clouds. And then beginning in verse 3, he uses, I don't know, one of the most poetic descriptions of aging you get anywhere, not just in the Bible, but I think in any ancient literature. Solomon starts describing the aging process like a house that's beginning to deteriorate. Look at how he says it in verse 3. He says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. The keepers, the protectors of the house. He's probably talking about your arms. Your arms are what you protect this house with. That's how you fight off danger. That's how you make a living. And what happens to those strong arms over time? And when you're young, you feel like with your arms you could lift a house. What happens eventually? Those arms that once could lift a house now, now tremble so bad you can't even button your own shirt. Keepers of the house tremble. And Solomon says, The strong men bow down. Strong men are the supports, the pillars. He's talking about our legs. Our legs hold up our body. And what happens over time to those strong legs? And when you're you're young, you run up and down flights of stairs without even thinking about it, right? I remember when I was a kid and we got our first house with stairs. I thought stairs were the greatest thing in the world. I thought only rich people had stairs in their house. And I love stairs. Well, as you get older, you intentionally look for houses that don't have stairs. Because they begin to bow down. And then he says, keep going, the grinders cease because they are few. What are the grinders he's talking about there? that suddenly you have few of them. It's talking about your teeth. The days of eating candied apples quickly go away. I mean, especially think in Solomon's day, where there's no such thing as implants, and there's no such thing as dentures. You get to the age where you need food that doesn't require a whole lot of grinding. And then Solomon says, and the windows grow dim. The windows are how you look out of the house, right? So what are the windows that grow dim? What happens to your eyes as you age? Now, when I came here in 2009, I did not own a pair of glasses. And I vividly remember. I didn't know what was going on. I just started having constant headaches. And then I was sitting in a deacon's meeting one night, probably 10 years ago, and I opened my Bible to read a passage of Scripture in the deacon's meeting. And I got through like two verses, and then all of a sudden I couldn't read it anymore. I had to call on, I think I called on Neil in the service, or in the meeting, to finish reading the passage. I couldn't even make out the words anymore, and I finally broke down and got a set of glasses, right? As you age, all of a sudden, the windows start going dim. Then he says in verse 4, when the doors are shut in the streets, he's probably describing how as you age, it gets harder and harder to leave the house. There's not a whole lot of coming and going anymore. And then he says, the sound of grinding is low. Not only do the eyes begin to fail, what else begins to fail with age? Your hearing begins to fail except when you're trying to sleep. And that's why he says the sound of grinding is low when one rises up at the sound of a bird. What's he describing there? What happens with age? Your hearing gets hard but but it doesn't take anything to ruin your sleep. I mean compare that to a little kid. You have a a six-year-old who falls asleep on the couch And as a parent, you're going to carry them to their bedroom. You can scoop them up and throw them over your shoulder, carry them to their room, change clothes, put their pajamas on them, leave the lights on the whole time, tuck them into bed, and they never wake up. But all of a sudden, as you start getting older, it takes the smallest thing and your sleep's gone. You wake up, you can't fall back asleep. The days of sleeping late disappear. And then he says, daughters of music, are brought low. It seems like he's describing our voices here, our singing voices, that as you get older, what happens to that voice? Well, your vocal cords get less elastic. Your ability to hit those notes gets harder and harder. Your voice weakens. And then in verse 5, he says, Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When you get older, you're afraid of Height. What does he mean by that? Well, when you're young, you don't think anything about climbing up a ladder. You don't think anything about coming down a flight of stairs. You have your balance. Even if you do fall, you're going to bounce right back from it. But as you get older, your balance gets a little bit more unstable. You know, if you do fall, the results could be catastrophic. So with age comes an increased fearfulness. And then I like this next phrase. He says, When the almond tree blossoms, The blossoms on an almond tree are like a a grayish silver color. And what he's describing here is when you're young, you have a a head full of black or brown or blonde or red hair, and then as you get older, all of a sudden the buds on the almond tree blossom. The hair turns gray, and eventually the leaves might even fall away for some of us. And then he says, back in verse 5, and the grasshopper is a burden. It's a sad picture. Because what do you think of when you think of a grasshopper? You think of something that's nimble and spry. Have you ever watched a kid try to catch a grasshopper running around the yard and this grasshopper bounces all over the place? But here's this poor grasshopper who's been injured and he's just barely dragging himself along. And then he uses that phrase at the end of verse 5. And desire Fails. It's, it's literally the word, and the caperberry fails. Caperberries were something that they used as a, an aphrodisiac. They thought that caperberries increased your sexual appetite. And Solomon is saying, the day comes when even the caperberry fails. Okay, so this is Solomon's description of age. And how does it end? So you're getting older, eyesight fails, hearing fails, the caperberry fails. And then here's the conclusion Look back at your text. He says at the end of verse 5, For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. What's he describing there? Where's all this leading to? He's describing a funeral service, where eventually your body is put in the ground, the mourners who have gathered break up and go back home. The end. But that's not really the end, is it? Because the Bible is going to tell us that even though these bodies fail, there's something else going on than what just happens with our bodies. Listen to how Paul explains it. This is Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Picking up in verse 16. Paul's describing this exact process and he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you get what Paul's saying? He's saying, yeah, these bodies are wearing away. Yeah, these bodies are wasting away, but we're more than bodies. In Christ, we have spirits that have been made alive. And as we age, even as these bodies weaken and fall apart, by God's grace, He continues to strengthen our spirits. By God's grace, He continues inwardly to renew us. So your body may be inevitably deteriorating, but by God's grace, you have a soul that can get stronger. You have a soul that through the years can know God better. You have a soul that through the years can be refined You have a soul that through the years can get deeper and deeper roots in grace. So there's more than just decaying bodies. And I love the way Paul says in those verses that the afflictions we face in these bodies, he says, are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has waiting for us. So everything we face in these bodies that is so catastrophic and that is getting worse and worse, it's temporary and it's light compared to what God has for his children. But that's not even the end of God's plan for these bodies, is it? Listen to how Paul continues in that next chapter. I'll read one more verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He's talking about these bodies decaying and Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul says these current bodies are like tents. I always love that description because how long are you meant to live in a tent? For me, one night is about the end of it. I don't want to live in a tent long and the longer you try to live in a tent, what happens to it? The longer you live in a tent, the more uncomfortable it gets. The longer you live in a tent, the more stakes that go missing and the more cracks that develop in the seams. The harder the life gets, the longer you stay in the tent. And Paul's saying, for believers, the day's coming when these tents are going to be laid aside. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for our bodies beyond that. Paul says that one day God in his grace and by his power is going to give us new bodies but those new bodies aren't going to be like tents he says those new bodies are going to be like buildings they're going to be permanent we're going to get resurrected new glorified bodies that never wear out they never hurt they never waste away so you see how paul is trying to give us hope in light of verses like ecclesiastes paul's saying even as your body listen it's inevitable your body's going to wear out we just sang about it like, uh, how, did the, how did the verse in uh, my worth is not in what I own go? Like summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty. What happens to all of them? Fame, youth, and beauty, hurry by. Your youth, your beauty are quickly passing by, but in the middle of that... Through Christ, our spirits are alive. In the middle of that, through Christ, our spirits are made stronger. In the middle of that, through Christ, our spirits are renewed. And we live with the hope that one day God's going to give us new bodies that will live in forever, that never wear out, that never hurt, that never break down. And so in light of that, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Okay, so Solomon's pointing to the inevitability of aging and the inevitability of death. And then look at verse 6. This is back in Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. What Solomon is doing there is he's describing the end of life as something that was once beautiful and precious that in an instant is shattered. So he describes first, imagine a a golden lamp. Beautiful lamp that hangs from the ceiling by a a silver cord. And Solomon says, then the day comes where that silver cord snaps and the lamp falls and crashes and the light goes out. Or think of a well where you have a wheel at the top and a pitcher at the bottom and you use that pitcher to pull up water. But then the day comes where the wheel breaks and the pitcher falls and the pitcher is shattered His point is, life is precious, but life is fragile. And life ends in an instant. So as long as you have breath in your lungs, remember your Creator. So I've I've said a lot to young people. Let me say something to those who are older. Don't pull up before the race is over. As long as God has you here, God has you here for a reason. As long as God has you here, praise God. As long as God has you here, serve people. As long as God has you here, make disciples. Don't use age as an excuse to check out of the race. Don't just remember your Creator when you're young. Remember your Creator to the day you take your last breath. It's possible to get to the end of your life and have regrets about your early years, but listen to me. It's also possible to get to the end of your life and have regrets about your later years. I know folks who have lived faithfully for Christ early and then the last 10 years of their life checked out. Don't let that be your testimony. God has you here for a reason. Remember your Creator now. Verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the Spirit will return to God Who gave it? This kind of harkens back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? What does does God say to Adam is going to be the results of his sin? Do you remember? God says to Adam, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's what's being described here. God is the one who formed us. God is the one who gave us life. But because of sin, one day these bodies are going to return to the dust. But when these bodies return to the dust, what does the rest of verse 7 say? These bodies may return to the dust, but on that day our spirits will return to the Creator. Okay, that's what all of this is moving toward. So the call from Solomon in these last few verses is make sure you prepare today for that day. A day's coming when your body is going to be lowered into the ground and your spirit is going to stand before God. And there is nothing more dreadful than to stand before God on that day and hear God say, Depart from me, I never knew you. So get your life right with the God who made you. And God's only provided one way that can happen, and that is through Jesus. There's no amount of moral reform you can do to make your life right with God. That's been blown long ago. You You and I have already gone off track with that, but God sent Jesus to represent us. He lived the perfect life we didn't live. He attained righteousness for us. And he went to the cross to take the penalty for our unrighteousness. He took the consequences for our sins against God. And then he rose from the dead to secure eternal life. And the promise of Scripture is, if you will humble yourself before God, stop thinking you'll ever do enough to make God happy with you. God is happy with you in Jesus. So put your trust in Jesus and remember your Creator. And then the last verse, and we'll wrap up. Verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now he puts that there as a bookend. Because that's how he starts Ecclesiastes too. If you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, this is how Solomon starts the book. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he takes the rest of the book to explain that. To explain how all of life, lived apart from God, is empty. It doesn't matter which path you choose. It can be career, money, relationships, sex, parties. It doesn't matter. It's empty without God. He started that way, then he proved it, and now he's ending with the same sentence. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's a terrible conclusion to come to if you come to that conclusion without God. And what I mean by that is, if you live your whole life going down every path the world offers only to come to the end of your life and throw your hands in the air and go, it's all vanity. It was all in vain. Nothing mattered. That is the worst way you could end your life. But this is a good conclusion to reach if you come to this conclusion by God's help early in life. If you reach a point in your life where you realize everything you've lived for apart from God is pointless and empty and you turn to your Creator, that's the key to life. And what Solomon is saying here is, as long as you have breath in your lungs, it is not too late to come to that conclusion. If you're still young, if you're in the prime years of your life, rejoice in those years. Remember your Creator now. Live life to the glory of God in these years. And If you're old, if you're coming toward the end of your life, maybe you're at the end of the spectrum where you're looking up at that silver cord that Solomon described, and that cord's looking awfully threadbare. Maybe it's clear to you that you have more years behind you than you have ahead of you. Well, we'll here's Solomon saying this morning, there's still time. Not as much time as there was, but there's still time. I think of the story of the thief on the cross, right? The guy next to Jesus who in the last minutes of his life called out to Jesus in faith that Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So wherever you are, if God still has breath in your lungs, Call out to your Creator through faith in Jesus. Remember your Creator today. Whether you're young or whether you're old, that is the only life that matters. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord in your seat. Every time we turn to Scripture, it's good for us to respond to it. And that's the point of this this time where you can pray in your seat and you can, in your own heart, go to God. And maybe you've lived your whole life disconnected from your Creator. And God, in grace, has preserved your life and God, in grace, has you here today for this purpose. To finally bring you to the end of yourself so you'll admit the vanity of your life before God and you'll look to Jesus who reconciles you to the God who created you. Call out to Him today to save you. Young people, commit your life today. You're going to rejoice in these years. You're going to remember your Creator in these years. So go to the Lord yourself in your heart, and then I'll come up in a minute and close this.